the book of Revelation chapter 11, the third and final sermon from this chapter, we see the blowing of the final, the seventh trumpet, and the fulfillment of the destruction of the city of Jerusalem and the temple that was there upon the mountain. Revelation chapter 11, beginning in verse 15, Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sat before God on their thrones fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was and who is to come, because you have taken your great power and reigned. The nations were angry, and your wrath has come, and the time of the dead that they should be judged, and that you should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, small and great, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. Then the temple of God was opened in heaven, and the ark of his covenant was seen in his temple, and there were lightnings, noises, thunderings, an earthquake, and great hail. Thus far, the reading of God's holy words, you may be seated. Let me pray now for the blessing of the preaching of it. Lord, we come to you this morning, and we ask that we would be active as far as we are able participants in the hearing of your word. Lord, remove distractions from us. And we think even especially of our covenant children this morning that you would grant to them understanding, even though there is much in Scripture that is difficult. So much of it is so simple and easily understood that it is there before us. Lord, would you give to us all the ability to take and to uh, understand and hear and be transformed as a result of the preaching of your holy word. And so may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be found acceptable in your sight. We pray, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Having reached the conclusion of the second interlude that takes place in Revelation chapter 10, verse 1, through Revelation chapter 11, verse 14, much like the first interlude that is found in Revelation chapter 7, the entirety of that chapter, these interludes separate the seals and the trumpets and the sixth and the seventh seal and the sixth and the seventh trumpet. These things are here so that we might better understand why things are the way they are. If you want to know why history is moving as it has then you turn to the book of Revelation. You turn to the whole of Scripture. In fact, all of human history, though man discounts this and denies it altogether, all of human history is really the great story of divine affection and the pursuit of a sinful people unto the building of a kingdom that can never be shaken. It is a romance. It is uncomfortable as that may make you. And it is not just the romance between 
the son of God and a wayward bride, but it is the story of a father's love for his sons such that when we look at creation, it is God, because he loved his son, making mankind in order to give it to his son as a gift. Now, of course, the bride rebelled, and it was necessary that the son pursue her in order to woo her and make her his own. It is, again, a story of great romance, of covenant affection, of covenant faithfulness. And here in the book of Revelation, we see in essence, prior to the second coming of Christ, the final chapter being opened to us so that we may understand why things are the way they are. Revelation 11, verses 15 through 19, we find here the inauguration of new covenant church life, of the age of the Spirit and the destruction of the temple, and how that age came to be, what is characterized by that age, and where we are going in light of Christ's rule and reign on earth. Two points that I want to make this morning. The first, Christ and the new age. I'm not talking about new age as a religion. I'm talking about this new eon, this new epoch, post-resurrection and ascension. Christ and the new age. And then secondly, the spirit and the nations. The spirit and the nations. Now, First point this morning, Christ in the new age. If we are to understand how Revelation, the book, and what is found within this book, we must understand all of Revelation, all of redemptive history, all of what God has done. And you may say, well, that is a daunting task. And I would say to you, yes, it is. But it can actually be summarized quite easily if you take the big sort of contour moments in church history. Creation. Fall, the first promise of the Messiah in Genesis chapter 3, the Noahic covenant and the flood. You have Jacob and the patriarchs. And before that, Abraham and Isaac and the covenant made to Abraham that he would be the father of a great nation. You have the covenant made to Moses and to the nation of Israel. You have the Davidic covenant and all of these covenantal sort of high watermarks, the mountains that sort of peek out between the moments that are not rudimentary or normal, but just the big moments. The Exodus 20, 2 Samuel 7, the big covenantal moments, Genesis 12, 15 and 17. Then what you see throughout Scripture is there is one continuous covenantal progression of God is establishing a family that will fill the whole earth. So... Have babies, win converts, take over. That's the Christian mission. Take over the world. And that is what we endeavor to do at Reformation OPC. We may be small, but our mission is to take over the whole world. And so Christ's humiliation is not all there was to his earthly ministry. He also has his exaltation. But in the passion of Christ, his suffering, his death, his burial, he paid for our sins. In this, he became the propitiating sacrifice. Propitiation just means in his death, he quieted the anger of God. 
Propitiation means to pay for, to, to sort of silence and to calm, as it were, the wrath of God against our sins. And in his resurrection, victory over the grave, and in his ascension, taking the throne of heaven and earth, and in Christ we, are, we have died and we have been raised with him. And in these events of redemptive history, there is a pre-Christ reality and there is a post-incarnation, not post-Christ, but post-earthly ministry reality. In the Old Testament, there is the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit is given to the people of God, but the people of God were small, the remnant was narrow, and until Pentecost, that would be the case. But at Pentecost, we see how the new age will be categorized, what it will be characterized by, and what is to come. And the great singular reality informing event and what is happening in heaven connected to what happens on earth is Christ now upon the throne. Now, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit have always been God. They have always ruled and reigned. Now, of course, prior to the ascension of the Son, it was the Father. And it was the Father who sat upon the throne. And in the ascension of Christ, the Father gives the Son all authority because of his death, burial, and resurrection. Because of his obedience, Philippians chapter 2. But there is a reality in this new covenant, in the New Testament age, in which things are distinct and different. For one, where is the temple? And what role does the temple play in our religion? And what is the work of the Holy Spirit? Now, there is an enormous amount of ink spilled in the first part of the book of Revelation regarding, up to this point even, Revelation 11, the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. Christ himself talks about this, the abomination of the desolation. He talks about the destruction of the temple even in his own flesh when he himself admits that it is through me in which the nations of men will come and be gathered. And so in the beginning of Revelation chapter 11, there is a profound change. Not one kingdom that is Israel into which the nations must go but the power and presence and glory of Christ will go out into the nations. And so we read in verse 15, Then the seventh angel sounded a trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. This is different categorically than what we found in the Old Testament. This did not mean that God was not sovereign over the nations, but now that Christ has come, he would express his redeeming gospel power by taking over the nations. So, in Matthew chapter 28, when we look at the Great Commission, we often look at the imperative, go and make disciples, baptizing and teaching, which is interesting that baptism comes before discipleship. This is where our covenant understanding of baptism comes. We baptize and then we teach, unless you've never been baptized before. But even still, it marks the beginning. 
that you are to go out into all the nations. And we focus on that, and that is good, the imperative. But what is the indicative that undergirds and supports that imperative? Christ says what? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto me. Now, when Christ says all authority in heaven and on earth, he's not talking only about spiritual authority. He's talking about spiritual and earthly authority. That every nation that calls themselves a nation, a tribe, or a tongue, the ultimate authority of every people group that has ever existed is Christ. He's the guy, he's the king. He has the ultimate authority. And if Christ is the king of heaven and earth, then the work of the Great Commission is to evidence and realize that great kingly reality. What we are laboring for on earth is that every tribe, tongue, and nation may confess Christ's lordship. We go everywhere. There is nowhere we do not go. Because in Christ, there is no Jew or Greek, male or female, right? And so we go out into the world and we seek the salvation of every kind of person. And if this is the case, where are we calling them to worship? Let's say we send out a team from Gastonia. And we just say go down the street, or we go to another county, we go to another state, or we go to another country. And we say, come to Christ and worship. Are we saying, well, make sure you get here by 9.30 on Sunday morning? Well, maybe, if they're close enough to come. In John chapter 4, Jesus is talking to the adulterous woman at the well. And they have a little bit of a conversation about her own sins. And she wants to ask Jesus also, not just, well, I don't know if she's trying to change the subject, probably. Where do we worship? In Samaria or in Jerusalem? And Jesus says, that's not the right question. Right now, the new covenant reality is this, that wherever there is word and there is spirit, that is where I am. And so when we gather for worship here, we gather here because we own the building. We turn the air conditioning on. We pay the power bill. The lights are on. But we could move 50 feet this way and stand in the parking lot and still be the house of God. We would be the people of God. We would still be the church. And so there are people meeting here. There are people meeting just down the street. They're meeting on the other side of the county. They're meeting all over this world. And in fact, in our own denomination, 18 hours every Sunday, there is the continuous worship of the Lord God. And in every true church of the Lord Jesus Christ, there are 24 hours of continuous singing and covenant worship, public worship every Lord's Day. And every day there are, well, maybe not in the ocean. That'd be difficult. <laughs> so maybe there are some time zones that are a little left out. But do you know what, I, you know what I'm saying? That we are in this new age, we call it one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Little c Catholic. That is, all the saints 
who have gone before and all the saints who remain on earth are in a concert of worship together. And we worship because the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of the Lord and his Christ. God the Father and God the Son through Christ's ministry and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit are not content with one place, one city, one house, but all of the world is to be filled with the knowledge and the glory of God. In fact, this takes us back to the very beginning of God's first intentions in the garden. When God placed Adam and his wife in the garden, their mission was to take the garden and expand it throughout the whole world. It was one little place, and there were two people. And they were to do two, well, a couple things. They were to be fruitful and multiply. They were to have babies so that they could fill the garden with more worshipers. This is why our children are in worship. Get used to it. <laughs> right? Get used to the noise. Get used to the, well, getting up and getting down. Get used to the, it does feel a little bit like a petting zoo, doesn't it? It's got that feel. Just constant noise. I was up this morning at 5.30 getting ready, and I'm sitting there, and I'm enjoying the quiet, and then all of a sudden, my rooster starts crowing, and I'm going, ugh. There's going to be a little bit of all of that. But the point is what? To reveal to the world that what we do in worship looks a lot like what the kingdom is supposed to look like. Men, women, children together operating as the body of Christ. And we are together by Christ's redeeming work, the church. And we are a long, long way from Jerusalem. So what has brought about this change? That is the question. For even here in the book of Revelation, this is what sparks worship. This great new covenant reality is that it is not one kingdom in one place, but that Christ's ascension and his taking the throne is the picture of his global dominion. Christ, for he spoke of this in his ministry. When he speaks of the tearing down of his own body and three days later he would build it up again, he would be repaired, he would be resurrected. And they said it took 46 years to build Herod's temple. It doesn't take 46 years to build anything now. And even in our ministry, we are very impatient. And oftentimes we don't even know how the church is built. We think that we have to do it. Of course, Christ is teaching them then and teaching us now how the work of the kingdom is accomplished. It is through his death, burial, and resurrection. And so the seventh trumpet here in Revelation chapter 11 marks the inauguration of something significant concerning Christ's rule and reign and the state of the people, the people of God. It is a spiritual event, and there is a physical event. Now the spiritual event that marks the inauguration is found in Acts chapter 2. In fact, if you want to turn to the book of Acts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Acts and Luke are both written by Luke. And in Acts chapter 2, he is relating Peter's sermon and recording it for us as the church begins to grow in the early days. 
Now beginning in chapter 2, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as a, a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and, to begin, and they began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, I am not going to go down the rabbit trail of second baptism of the Holy Spirit or these languages or a spiritual special language. I will say this. These are foreign languages. What Christ is doing here in Acts chapter 2 is inaugurating and reversing, in essence, the judgment at Babel. When man seeks to exalt themselves at the expense of true worship, God judges them and frustrates their languages. And so what you find at Babel is what we're finding in our culture today. No man, no woman can agree on any language. What do you call this? What do you call that? And so when God judged those at Babel seeking to build for themselves a tower in which they would glory in themselves, he brought chaos. In the spirit, he unites the languages and he brings men now from every tribe, tongue, and nation that had been dispersed as a result of his judgment. He brings them back through the blood of Christ and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And so this is what Paul is talking about when we read no slave free greek or jew man or woman in christ spiritually speaking we are one people we may not speak the same language we may have different national borders our neighbors may be very different from one another but in christ we are one people that is our primary identity it is not our only identity but it is our primary identity and this spiritual event is the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. As Jesus had said in John 15. In John 15, verse 26, Jesus says, But when the Helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me, and you will also bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. We are a church of Father, of Son, and of Holy Spirit. And these three persons are one God, the same in substance, equal in power and glory. We are a church that holds to the Trinity, the doctrine of the triune Lord. And this Holy Spirit, he was poured out, having been sent by the Father and Son, as Jesus says, in John 15, and will result in two extraordinary things. The nations will be one because the church will be filled with power. And so what happens is, where in the Old Testament, Israel was to outwardly look different from the nations as to present the infection, the leaven of the world, from creeping into the nation, we are now sent out into the nations, and we are called leaven because we're supposed to influence the world. The church is indeed a dangerous institution. And I mean that in the best way possible. You and I, having been armed with the word, putting on the full armor of God, being sent out by the Father with the gospel of the Son, empowered by the Holy Spirit, are taking over the nations. And what we have seen cannot compare to what we will one day see. And so we are to look out 
Not to be influenced by what's out there, but to influence them. And so it's not, we're stuck in here with them. No, no, no. They're stuck in here with us. I want you to think that way. I want you to unleash the animal that is the lion of the tribe of Judah. I want you to think of the conquest that is the result of Christ's sending the Holy Spirit out. It is no accident in John 4 where Jesus says, wherever the word and spirit are, the next thing he teaches about to his disciples is, look, the fields are white unto harvest. Everywhere you go, there are little heads of grain. You need only go pluck them for the sake of Christ's glory. They're everywhere. Sometimes they're born into our covenant homes. Sometimes they're a result of conversion and being brought into the Christian faith later in life. But the spiritual event of Pentecost assures that the journey to Jerusalem is no longer necessary. In fact, it is passed away. And then there's a physical event. Christ destroys the place where you would have gone anyway. It's not there anymore. All of these Christians who go to the Holy Land... I don't understand. It is almost as though they go expecting some kind of mystical experience. Why? I don't... Well, I think in large part it's because of the influence of dispensationalism in American culture. That's part of it. But it's because we think if we go, maybe... Maybe something will be made manifest. It's just superstition. I'm not saying don't go to Israel. It's a beautiful place. Sea of Galilee, the Dead Sea, go float, right? Because you can really float because of all the salt. (laughs) Go, but it's not like you're going to go to these places and sort of step where Jesus stepped and touched what he touched and, ooh, I feel it. I'm going to go back to Gastonia now, supercharged, like some sort of static electricity experience. That's not how it works. And every religion, save reformed covenantal theology, is looking for the reinstitution of something ancient in order for the progress of that particular religion to take place. For the Jew, the temple has to be rebuilt. For the Islamists, what must happen? Well, the Dome of the Rock. You have to go there, or you've got to go to Mecca. Or any of these high and holy places. For dispensationalists, their end is what? The temple will have to be rebuilt. Sacrifices will be reoffered. And we've got to make sure we burn the book of Hebrews because it's the only way that will make sense. <laughs> and even now in our day and age, we are waiting for something that has actually already taken place in many of our religions. Or in how we express it. But the fact of the matter is this. Since the temple has been destroyed and the Holy Spirit has been poured out, Christ is saying to his church, I've taken care of it all. Just go. Just go. In fact, this is the great sin in every generation. Christ says go and we stay put. This happened before Babel. Noah and his family, was to, they were to leave the ark and cover over all the earth like Adam and his wife were called to do. But they stayed put and decided to build a city in the glory of men. Now, I'm not saying living in one place is bad. What is bad is that we deny the call 
to seek the conversion of heathen far and near. We need to sow widely Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the other ends of the earth. And Christ has taken care of all of it. He has answered the prayer that we find even here, and it shall come to pass. Sorry, I'm reading from the book of Acts, not the book of Revelation. (laughs) It is verse 17 anyway. We give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was and is to come, because you have taken great uh, you have taken your great power and reigned. The nations were angry, and your wrath has come, the time of the dead, and they shall be judged, and that you should reward your servants, the prophet and the saints, and those who fear your name, small and great, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. Christ is taking over. Christ is bringing judgment against the great city that betrayed the Messiah. And so as it relates to the pouring out of the rule and reign of Christ, second point, main point, the spirit and the nations, David Clark, theologian and commentator, writes this, the first great oppressor is swept away. Here, David Clark is speaking of Satan. Christ in his gospel said, now that the strong man is bound, there is free run of the house. The strong man there in that parable is Satan. Christ has in his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension bound Satan. So the first great oppressor is swept away, and the kingdoms of this world, no, rather the rule or sway of this world, belongs to Christ. Now the kingdom was really given to Christ at his ascension. But two things had to happen before it was rightly on its way as a world-conquering power, that is the church. The first was spiritual, as I've already said, the outpouring of the Spirit at Pentecost, and the second was physical, the breaking down of the barrier of Judaism in the fall of the first great opposer. Then Christianity became a world religion. David Chilton, another writer, speaks, Thus the kingdom of God, the fifth kingdom prophesied in Daniel 2, becomes universalized. The final disassociation of Christianity from Judaism means that it is now a worldwide religion. The kingdom of Christ now begins the process of encompassing and enveloping all the kingdoms of this world. The prayers of the martyrs was answered. The destruction of Jerusalem. The prayers of the martyrs is answered. Christ will judge all of those who war against the church. Christ has in his death, in his burial, in his resurrection, and his ascension, bound the power of Satan. And for this reason, and the sending out of the Spirit into the world, the church will be victorious. It's not a question mark. Will we succeed? Do you want to be part of a church like that? Just cross your fingers, guys. But even as the word of God is preached, this is ironic. There are some who, in the way they look at the kingdom, reject the passage that says that the word of God goes forth and never returns void. Which means what? That when the word of God is preached, there will be those who believe and they will be saved. And there are those who reject it and they will be judged. The kingdom of Christ has an effect. It is not ineffectual. My kingdom is ineffectual, right? I say, go do this. No one does it. (laughs) Let's go there. I can't get it done. In fact, my impotence is shown everywhere in my power and in my inability to get things done. Christ is not impotent. He is omnipotent. 
And so, in answer to the prayers of the saints who are gathered around the throne, Christ destroys those who would destroy the church. He brings them under his power. And he does so either in mercy or judgment. There are those who stand against Christ and he conquers them in his love and compassion and he makes them his children. And yet there are those who stand against Christ and he rolls them under in his judgment like Pharaoh. And so within the kingdom there are Paul, men like Paul or Saul, and then there are those who are rolled under like Pharaoh or Nebuchadnezzar or Darius or others. And now that Jerusalem has fallen... The nations of the earth have become the nations of our God. So what does that mean? If there's nowhere to go, if the temple is gone, what is the implication? And it's not an implication. But let's say we're slow. (laughs) What is the implication? There's nowhere to go but Christ. We don't need to go build the temple. And as far as I'm concerned, I guess the Dome of the Rock can stay. Except that I would like to see Islam completely conquered by Christianity. And they themselves tear down that Asherah. That, that demonic temple. Instead, what do we do? We rejoice that Christ is present here with us today. And that wherever there is word, there is spirit. That the triune God fellowships with us through the person and work of Jesus Christ. There is nowhere to go but to Christ. And so when we say to men, come and welcome to Jesus Christ, it is not only an offer of salvation, come and be reconciled, but it is an invitation to whole life worship and obedience. Feast upon the fellowship of the Godhead. Delight in the fellowship of the Godhead. But those whose religious interests are dependent upon a singular place miss the Messiah. Instead, we say, come to Christ, run to Christ and be saved. He is our refuge, our help, our temple. Come and welcome to Jesus Christ. And that welcome, that invitation is for all the world. We go everywhere armed with that invitation. And you don't have to be a professional missionary. You can just be in Christ and say to others, come and welcome to Jesus Christ. But you must know the terms of the invitation. You must come, even as Christ said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Only through Christ. And so as the temple was concerned, it was a way in that it pointed to the way. It was the shadow, the type, but not the substance. And so for the idolater, it became the substance and not the type or the shadow. And for any who deny the substance for sake of the shadow, prove themselves to be idolaters. And so what is our mission It is to point others to Christ. It is to point, look at verse 19. Then the temple of God was opened in heaven, and the ark of his covenant was seen in his temple. And in this great grand opening, this inauguration day, lightning, noise, thundering, earthquake, and hail. 
Not unlike Exodus 19, when Israel is brought to the mountain and they tremble at the foot of the mountain because of the lightning and the thunder. This is the grand opening of the church throughout all the world. And it is preceded in the most glorious and manifest of ways. What keeps us then from seeing it? That we have not yet entered in through Christ. Christ not only says, I am the way, he also says, I am the door. And the sheep go in through the sheep gate. The door, that is Christ Jesus. And so the invitation that is to come to us in light of the reality now in this new age, this new eon, inaugurated here in Revelation chapter 11 is, come to Christ and be welcomed. The doors are open. You need to heed the invitation. The doors are open, and so we need to proclaim that that invitation is to all men. They need only what? Enter in. So wherever you go on earth, wherever you find yourself, or among whomever you find yourself, there are no people who are excluded based upon their earthly membership. You need only believe in Christ. He is the way to the Father. Let's pray. Oh, Lord our God, we pray.